Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today, we will discuss the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act from a very different global, historic, and economic perspective. I'm calling this series Hidden Elements. Our guests today are very familiar panelists on this on the show. They are Professors Harold Prince, a native of the Netherlands. He's a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at the University of Kansas. Professor Darren Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and professor of anthropology and chair of the Native American Studies at the University of Maine. Welcome to the show, everyone. I wanted to look at the land claims through a very different Wabanaki window. I've always thought that there was more to land the land claims uh, historically and economically. I wanted to look at it through a global economic and historic perspective and see where that takes us. We often talk about racism, institutional racism, white nationalism and caste systems as being at the core of our deep-rooted problems. I've often wondered, what if they are not the core, but side effects, and not the disease, but the symptoms? I begin to think there is something bigger and even more sinister in our global economic history that is hidden and not talked about. I'm talking about our capitalist system and the commodification of everything it touches from healthcare to education and beyond. The failure to put this under the light to study uh, keeps us making the same mistakes time after time. It's very important st to study things from all angles. And if we do this, we may find the unexpected we may find new ways to move forward towards a brighter future so we don't repeat the failures of the past. So I wanna look at the Settlement Act through a very different Wabanaki window. We'll start off with the land and the land claims and follow the thread back in history and then back again to the present. I hope this will be an enlightening journey. I'm gonna ask Darren to remind us about the land pieces that were in the Land Claim Settlement Act, beginning with the claim of two thirds of the state of Maine. Yeah, thanks, Donna. Good morning and great joining the two of you again, as always. Um, so as you pointed out, the, the Settlement Act was basically uh, to settle title to lands that were um, taken uh, by uh, um, treaties signed with the states, uh, uh, state of Massachusetts primarily, um, between after the 1790 Non-Intercourse Act, which made the federal government, not the states, the uh, arbiter of treaty making with, with tribes. So why do we even mention this two-thirds of the state is that um, there were significant treaties of land transfers in the 1790s in particular between the Passamaquoddy tribe and the Penobscot tribe at the time, Penobscot Nation now, um, which amounted to roughly two-thirds of the state uh, of Maine. 
Um, so prior to these 1790s treaties, there was um, still quite a, a recognized area for tribal uh, land interests and in the state. Um, and that these treaties, which are illegal, which were found to be <laughs> illegal by the uh, uh, by subsequent courts, um, and this is what led to the settlement. So this two-thirds of the state um, is uh, significant, obviously, uh, and at the time, uh, as the tribes, in the, starting with the Passamaquoddy v. Morton case, um, as the tribes uh, gained legal legitimacy and that these treaties were recognized as illegal transfers, um, things like uh, title and, and all sorts of other things that um, were important for land transfer uh, became a part of uh, a really important pressure on the state of Maine in particular. One thing, Donna, too, I wanted to mention, because I think this will sort of set, making the a baseline of like, what makes the Settlement Act also so interesting, and maybe I'm preempting some of the discussion, but we can come back to it, is uh, um, as you texted me uh, 20 minutes ago, I was just thinking like, uh, I, I remember in the Implementing Act, there were these entities that we, we had to buy the lands from. And this just also makes it interesting if we think about like, um, so again, two thirds of the state of Maine, and then suddenly, the federal government steps in with some resources uh, for the tribes to purchase back certain lands that are in this two thirds of the state that were under, um, that were illegally uh, taken. Uh, they really narrowed in on who are the owners of these lands and who was to benefit from this sort of sale. Uh, and if you look at it, it's kind of a who, who, who's who of, of, uh, especially in the paper industry of land development and, and paper industry. Uh, so you have Great Northern. So this is basically in the Implementing Act, the first 150,000 acres of land that the, the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot tribes could, could get back uh, would go into trust status, which means that it's you know, held in trust by the federal government for us. Um, but it was this, uh, you know, the Great Northern Corporation, the Remija Company, Heirs of David Pingree, lands of Prentice and Carlisle, uh, lands of Dead River, lands of D Diamond International, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's all these paper companies. And it be became a real windfall uh, for, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not how land sales are typically set up where you have uh, only a limited group of people you can buy from, uh, right? It wasn't a free market at this point. It was like, we know these these entities, these tribes have a certain amount of money, and then will the these companies can sell these lands that were no longer productive to them, primarily, or were never productive to them as paper companies or as landowners, uh, and it was just this huge windfall for that. I mean, it's just the ironies of that as I think about, hey, two thirds of the state is an open claim, and then suddenly the resolution to that is this like buy from these five or six corporations in these lands in these particular territories or towns in the state of Maine. It strikes me as, you know, obviously unjust as to as a way to settle such a claim. Um, but you know, here, here we are. This is uh, part of the, the thing that we're trying to unmask. Harold. Well, um, welcome. Uh, I feel welcomed by you and by Darren again for this uh, 
this version of uh, trying to figure out uh, what do we see through that Wabanaki window. And I feel privileged uh, that I am part of that uh, conversation to um, show the public, but also uh, force ourselves to relook and make sense of things that we thought we knew. And in later by new questions that we uh, raise, uh, open up new areas of observation and start saying, hey, we have to get a closer look at it. And that's what uh, your intention is, Donna, for this particular uh, program. And that's to look at it uh, from a uh, the global capitalist perspective. And the term itself uh, may be scary for people, but the reality is that uh, the world has turned to capitalism about uh, 400 years ago or so. Uh, people debate about exactly well, how to define it. I don't want to get into that at all. But the fact is that uh, the Wabanaki people have been on the fringe of the expanding capitalist system for a long time. The big difference is now with the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act that they become themselves as a result of the amount of money that uh, was uh, put into their hands as a result of the settlement of the claim that Darren was just referring to, then the question becomes what to do with that money. And um, as a result of that uh, large amount of money uh, that was very, very substantial in uh, then uh, the value of money, but even today it would be a lot of money. Uh, how do you make that money work for you? And that's the essence of capitalism in the sense that capital is not just money that you can spend on something or that you earn. So a wage worker earns a salary, has amount of money and spends it on the things he or she needs. And that's the normal function of money when we go to a uh, supermarket or we buy a house or whatever it may be. The difference with capitalism is that that money can work as money for you and accumulate as a result of the work that is being done, the performance of that money in the hands either of a corporation or a business or a state. In other words, when that money is being put to work, it yields an interest. And that interest is expressed in a percentage of the capital itself. So if you have a 5% interest return or 8% interest or 3%, generally speaking, the higher the return in interest, the greater the risk. So in other words, the lender will give that money to work for it, but if it's highly risky, they won't have a greater share of the return when that money is being put to work for you. A more secure, uh, generally speaking, this is just general uh, in, in, in line, that if you have a more secure investment, with a, then generally speaking, you get a lower interest. So the problem was that 1980 is, of course, when uh, Reagan was elected to the White House and Jimmy Carter was on his way out. So the last act that was signed into law by Jimmy Carter was the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act. That was one reason his, um, uh, the fact that he had lost the elections was one reason why there was a pressure felt by the tribes and their representatives uh, in, the, in, the, in the court case that uh, with Reagan in power, that you might not have a signing into law because then the uh, Congress would have to override a veto if Reagan would have vetoed it by two thirds majority, which is a real th large threshold. So if you have two parties that are more or less equal in power as they have often been in this country, and the Republicans come into power with Reagan in the White House, 
who then decides to veto a bill that had just been engineered and processed through the Congress, through the senators from Maine, Bill Cohen and uh, uh, Bill Mitchell, William Cohen and and um, and uh, and George Mitchell, then uh, the whole thing would fall apart. And so that was the pressure point, the election of Reagan into the White House and a spirit of capitalism that became very overt. Capitalism has always been part of the American fabric, but now it became very overt in terms of um, uh, cutting back government, big government, uh, and the idea that people would be more effective if they would be left to fend for themselves. The, the kind of the American ethos was in a way put into display. So the irony, and Darren was just mentioning ironic, right, when he talked about the, uh, the fact that the big uh sellers of the land in question were these um, four or five six uh, um, uh, corporations who had large amounts of woodland that the irony is when the penobscot nation decided to buy forest land that the value of that forest land through that artificially created demand by the federal government in the purchase back of that land, that the value of that forest land went up. So when the Penobscot nation part, started using part of its uh, uh, capital through the tribal assets management that Tom Terrine and uh, Zilka uh, founded in 1983, two years after, uh, three years after the uh, Land Claim Settlement Act, that actually they bought that land at a higher price than they would have had if the man maintaining the land claim settlement had not happened. Now, I've kind of only looked at it quite um, uh, on the surface. I've not done an in-depth analysis. I only know that in from an economic point of view, that uh, purchase of uh, forest land in the fee simple was actually economically quite bad. Uh, so quite a lot of land later had to be sold for other to raise revenue for other enterprises that Penobscot engage in. So the point is that I'm trying to make, and then I let you guys comment on that because you really know both a lot about this. But the irony is that while the Penobscot and the Passamquoddy have been uh, on the periphery of the capitalist system ever since they entered the fur trade uh, and were aware of price fluctuations, uh, were aware of value, how much beaver uh, could purchase a copper kettle or an iron axe and these kind of things. So they were operating on the on the fringes of the um, transatlantic capitalist system for a long, long time. Uh, the big difference is that through the Maining and Land Claim Settlement Act, for the first time, they had a huge amount of capital to dispose of. And the question was how to do that, what to do with that money. And there was a kind of a division, division in three parts. One, I think, was an investment in securities. It was a very safe investment, so to speak. Uh, and one third was in terms of entering the venture capital market. And that's where Tom Terrine and Zilka, a, a fellow Princetonian, who later got a um, an MBA from Harvard when Tom Terrine got his JD from uh, what was George Washington University, they partnered in the creation of TAM, T-A-M, Tribal Assets Management. They also did the work for the Pequot, uh, the Meshantucket Pequot in Connecticut, for example, and that was behind the whole Foxwoods um, uh, Resort Casino operation. And uh, quite a number of Penobscots have actually worked there, as you know. 
So anyway, the whole point is here that uh, the tribes, the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy in particular, become themselves indirectly capitalist entrepreneurs. And that, of course, led to a major problem because the question was, who was representing the Penobscot nation in making these decisions? And they entered into a whole different territory than anyone had ever been in before and were basically depending on the advice of the MBA and the JD, Terrain and Zilkan, in order to steer that capital in terms of uh, uh, interest earning, uh, profit earning uh, enterprises. So my, my thought on that particular point um, is that this uh, economic venture or whatever you want to call it uh, is something that the tribes are totally unfamiliar with. We, we had no, uh, no training in that area. Um, and even from the very beginning, when we talked about, you know, the, the treaties in 1794 and 1796, uh, two different worlds there. And that sort of has never changed. So what I'm interested in uh, looking at further, Harold, is sort of like the, the what I think you have referred to as the big hidden element uh, where uh, there's a capitalist nexus that sort of uh, was involved uh, across the Atlantic and behind the scenes when this stuff first started. So I wanted to look at that first, you know, to sort of build up that that land history uh, and, and sort of understand how that worked. Yeah, in a nutshell, it's extraordinarily complicated, as we all yeah. know. Right. And as you just indicated, much of it is hidden, which means we often don't know. And so we don't know what is discussed in boardrooms with closed doors. Uh, we don't know about it because often that doesn't appear in the annual report. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, deals being made at golf courses or in uh, at parties or at, uh, at a lawn, at somebody's pond, in the garden, where discussions are being held, made. And certain ideas are brewing and are articulated and then take shape and then are being put into action. What you often see is that you have certain kind of communities, um, such as people who went together to, let's say, Harvard Business School. They, they create buddies there who they know. And later, when they enter into business, um, they, that's the, uh, the telephone call that may be made. Um, and we will never know about these uh, telephone calls because they are not recorded uh, unless you are tapped by the FBI, for example. Uh, so in the case of Zilka, which is very interesting, uh, Zilka comes from a, a long line of uh, bankers uh, who had origin in Baghdad in Iraq. It was a, um, a Baghdad-based uh, Iraq Jewish family that um, later uh, spread through his sons uh, into uh, Egypt, where um, uh, Daniel Zilka was born in Cairo, but also to Geneva, to, uh, to Amsterdam, to all the financial centers uh, in Europe. And they spread also into New York. 
And so uh, in three generations of the Zilka banking family, uh, they also, for example, endowed a uh, chair in, in religious studies, Jew Jewish studies at Princeton. Um, so they began to engage in philanthropy as well as capitalist investments. And so we get a kind of an association. We talked about hidden power, right? Get on the one hand an association of Zilka name with philanthropy. But at the same time, the other hand is working in, in very difficult to see and understand ways in the world of high finance. And um, so we get a window on that very early on. Uh, Darren was mentioning the treaties with the state of Massachusetts that had been found to be illegal uh, in hindsight uh, because it was in violation of the non-intercourse of 1790. But what is, um, I actually intend to write a book about this ultimately, um, but I'm too busy with other things at the moment. But what is the fascinating thing is that uh, the founder of the Bearing, Bro Bearing Brothers Bank, it was a big bank in London that went bankrupt about, uh, what is it, 10, 15 years ago or so. Uh, but Alexander Bearing, whose name is still remembered in Maine because there's a town in Washington County called Bearing, Bearing Washington County is named after him. Uh, he was with, and the name we've often talked about before is Henry Knox as host, and with William Bingham. Uh, we know the name Bingham also from a place named here, both in Maine and in New uh, and in New York, upstate New York, was a big banker in Philadelphia. They were actually cruising in Penobscot Bay, knowing that the commissioners from Boston were at that moment trying to pressure Orono into signing that treaty of 1796 that they had refused for a long time until they couldn't refuse it anymore. But they were waiting because, and they referred to the treaty as a bargain. They were waiting for the treaty to be signed so that that would clear the title for investment in mainlands. In this case, a massive amount of land east of the Penobscot between the tribal territories of the Penobscot and Passamquoddy. And at one point, uh, Mount Desert Island, very few people know that, but was in the hands of a British bank. Uh, half of it was uh, owned by a British bank, all through straw man covering. So people in the Maine uh, uh, or Massachusetts at that time, the Massachusetts uh, legislature were at the same time acting as agents for these foreign banks who were using that as investment, uh, sometimes because of more dangerous areas for investment climate in Europe, uh, to park that money on this side. Uh, Dutch bankers were also involved at the time. So basically, coming back to the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act, the role of these bankers behind the scene, uh, and in particular in, in terms of venture capitalist enterprises that the Penobscot and the Passamquoddy were engaged in, some were very successful. The Dragon uh, Cement and Thomaston, right behind the old mansion of Henry Knox, ironically, uh, that was a very good investment in terms of return when the Passamquoddy tribe purchased it and then sold about uh, 10 years later or whatever it was. The Penobscot, I think, have fared poorly in terms of the, uh, the venture capitalist enterprises. And there's a string of failures. Um, and in part, that was that uh, perhaps advice was not heeded to. I think in the case of the Sokalexis uh, arena, uh, that, that was from an investment point of view, probably not so good. Others came bad timing, Olamon uh, Cape Industries, right, was a bad timing for the cassettes just at the moment that the CDs are on the rise as a new product. 
So you can get point to a whole series of things. But my sense is that overall, the Pesmkori have done better uh, in terms of the post-Mixa uh, situation uh, economically than the Penobscot. Uh, but I'm not a specialist on this area. But uh, I just want to point out that at the very birth of the making of the treaty done illegally, illegally in 1796 in the case of the Penobscot and 1793 for the Pesmkori, but that there were capitalist banking interests already behind the scene at work then, and at Mixa, and you see it very clearly with the, the Pequot Casino, there's a, that's a gigantic operation with a staggering amounts of money from these Chinese Malaysian casino operators who also were behind the financing of the Skadikook uh, federal recognition effort that I myself was invited to become the expert witness to, and I actually refused because I knew there was this Malaysian capital was behind it. I didn't want to get, get involved in that. I didn't want to take the money. I think just one more question for you, Harold. And I think if we look at the uh, banking investments back um, in, I, I kind of like to want to go back to, I want to say, I want to say 1620, the Mayflower. Yep. If you can go into that environment, at the time? Yeah, that's uh, what's interesting, of course, that um, 1620, um, when the pilgrims uh, leave their place of refuge in the Netherlands because of a truce that the Dutch Republic uh, had uh, in a 80-year-long war for independence against uh, the Spanish monarchy. It was a very long war. Uh, but in 1620, um, there were two major globally operating uh, joint stock companies were already uh, in function, and that was the British East India Company, and it was the uh, the Dutch East India Company, and both were joint stock operations in the sense that people who had uh, could make major investments in the corporation to finance the building and the operation of these fleets to sail all the way to China and to, um, uh, and to what's now called Indonesia, for example, and to India uh, for all kinds of goods, cotton, spices, tea, you name it. Um, that was a staggering amount of money was needed for that and to spread the risk that if you have all your money into one ship and the ship goes down, your fortune is gone. But if you spread your risk between, let's say, a fleet of 40 ships, then uh, the chance that all 40 will go down is much smaller. And it's still a risk, but the risk is much smaller. But it also means that you have to spread the profits from the 40 ships with X amount of other shareholders. So the whole idea about the shareholders in behind these joint stock companies um, was uh, the domain of people who were already people of means. They had to have a lot of capital because you couldn't just as, uh, invest, let's say, a few dollars. You had to come in with a major amount, let's say, I'm putting here a number on it, but something like the equivalent of, let's say, a $100,000 investment in the, um, in the joint stock company in contemporary money, right, in order to participate in that joint stock company. So in the case of the pilgrims, who were, generally speaking, rather poor, uh, they were weavers, uh, they were you know, small business people, um, 
uh, I believe none were really farmers, but none of them were rich either. Unlike the uh, the Puritans, had a number of very wealthy people like Winthrop. Winthrop was a very wealthy English uh, uh, merchant, but the pilgrims in general were not. And so the pilgrims needed to um, uh, have the money to a charter a ship, and b to have the funding to start their colony. Uh, you're not simply coming there with a bunch of axes and start cutting down a piece of forest and then build a colony that requires a lot of money. And the pilgrims were not the first. In the case of Maine, we have the uh, the Popham colony, so to speak, here right down from where I live. live. That too was major capital investment. It was a gigantically well-financed trip that was made here to the mouth of the Kennebec. Uh, aided by the uh, some of the Wabanaki guides who had been kidnapped at where is now is Allen's Island area in the Muscongas Bay in 1605 by Captain Weymouth. So here again, you see a early merchant capitalist enterprise making investments in the colonization. In the case of pilgrims, they had to go into debt because they didn't have the money with the promise of paying back once they had landed in X amount of years the funders of the, the or the, the, the lenders of the people that they borrowed the money from in order to charter the Mayflower and to start the company. And that was a failure as well. A, half of the pilgrims died that winter of 1620, 1621. They were woefully uh, ill-prepared for everything. Uh, it was just bad planning, but it also meant they couldn't pay back the debt that they owed to the merchant adventurers in London from whom they had borrowed the money to start the colony in the first place. And so then the, they heard the pilgrims, in this, this case, William Bradford, uh, who also, many of them spoke Dutch because they had lived in the Netherlands for seven years. They read Dutch as well. Uh, in New Amsterdam, where it's now Manhattan, New York, uh, the Dutch had discovered the great value of wampum in the trade upriver with the Mohawk and the Mahican up on the Hudson. And they realized that with that wampum money in the form of a certain kind of special purpose money, that they could actually purchase beaver and then make a lot of profit of the beaver trade. And the pilgrims struggling at Plymouth, at New Plymouth, they heard about it from their, uh, their, their Dutch partners in that small colony at the mouth of the Hudson. And they said, the Dutch guys said, hey, you guys can make money. You can buy the wampum from us. And you can put that money, that wampum money, to work by doing the fur trade on the Kennebec. And so that's how they sailed up the Kennebec and started that trading post right opposite the State House of Augusta, where later the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act is negotiated in, 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 the, in the late 70s, early, early 80s. And where you, Donna, of course, have served for a number of terms as tribal representative. But right across there, uh, where now is Fort Western, it, outside of where uh, for, for Fort Western, that's where the site of where they built the trading post at Kushnok, just where the first at the at the head of the tide. And so here you see that the pilgrims engaged in the fur trade with wampum purchased from Long Island uh, and where the Dutch were in uh, New Amsterdam, and they begin to then be able finally to make profits to pay off the debts to the merchant adventurers back in uh, back in England. So it's a fascinating intertwinement. And as you just said, with Wabanaki windows, if you are now sitting in that, um, that wigwam, let's say outside of Kushnok 
in uh, 1627, 1628, and were later the successors to the pilgrims in terms of the rights to the, to the Kennebec, when they found the Plymouth colony, people like James Bowden, right? Uh, the governor of Massachusetts and after whom Bowdoin College has been named and where you also worked as I did, Donna. Then you have one of these capitalists who begin to finance the, the, the building and construction of Fort Western to stranglehold the Abenaki of the Kennebec who are subject to the genocide that led to the vacating of the entire Kennebec River. So the hidden power of capital, right? That's the whole point, right? It's not just the bankers, but it's the investors who don't look at how that money is made to work and how that money generates the profits. All they look at is the interest rate that they can get on a, um, on a bank deposit that they've made in Amsterdam or in London or somewhere else. And they are saying, you promised me a 4% return. Where's my money, right? So the alienation between uh, what, what, what money can do, it, it alienates the source of the capital and the working of the capital. And that's why people may have blood on their hands and never see it because of the multiple strings in between. So do you have any comments on uh, what Carol was talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think this idea of being on the edge of this capitalism and um, this infrastructure is, um, it is core. I mean, that the the new world or, you know, the, from the European perspective, it, uh, it was all, you know, to, oriented towards land speculation, right? So, and and, you know, I've said this before, whose land, our land as indigenous people, right? So capitalism, as Harold pointed out, um, sees as its uh, core, um, as its core element, uh, th this idea of excess capital or access to capital. Um, and, you know, I think this, this idea that the rise of capitalism and the European incursions into quote unquote the new world, the Western hemisphere through land acquisition and, and speculation, that those things r rose together is not a coincidence, right? And I mean, I think that Harold, Harold kind of sketched that out in a banking kind of way, like how is this made possible? But it's very much um, a, uh, a definitive um, way of thinking about how did this prosperity all kind of uh, uh, come into fruition? How did these markets, you know, um, how did people even gain access to the kinds of resources needed for uh, this kind of um, expansion and, and and proliferation of capitalism? I think this is like such a huge, huge piece of this. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's a really foundational piece of this, but then you add in the kinds of motivations and hierarchies that also accompany this sort of frame of capitalism. For example, um, you know, the uh, the racialization, uh, the hierarchies around race and religion that, that sort of allowed for forms of dehumanization that allowed for takings, you know, uh, and otherwise, um, uh, and it, for people who prided themselves on things like the law or the rule of law, allowed it, allowed for all sorts of breaking of sort of 
mor morality clauses within their own cultures. Um, so I think, you know, and so I'm just bringing it back to the idea of the Settlement Act, which I mean, Harold said, you know, $81 million in 1980 is a lot of money, but you could have compared that to the value of the land of two thirds of the state of Maine, which is $25 billion, right? So, you know, as as is often the case, right? <laughs> Our pittance to that 25 billion um, is then somehow to the benefit of these landowners who are looking to unload lands in 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 this way. So, you know how how we how we address uh, the unjust uh, capitalist uh, accumulation uh, of certain groups over others, and then maintaining. Uh, that structure, you know, wherein, you know, as of last fall, the, you know, the, or the previous fall, the, you know, the Harvard report, um, um, you know, on, on our economic development as tribal nations here, Wabanaki tribal nations, because of our, um, the, our inability to dictate our own economic realities, right? We have not been able to participate in uh, some of the basic uh, infrastructures uh, of economy that other tribes have been able to um, build and, and, and participate in. So uh, it's just, it's so hard to divorce the, the frameworks um, that again, Harold did a great job sort of, you know, kind of rooted in Europe and European uh, uh, banking and, and the connections of certain capitalist infrastructures, but you know, how that actually impacts us here um, as Wabanaki people it is, uh, you know, it's definitely one of those new Wabanaki windows, like, oh, $81 million is a lot of money, but okay, compare that to 25 billion, you know, like, uh, the, the two thirds of the state of Maine versus 300,000 acres, you know, like thinking about how we move through that space and, and our ability to kind of imagine our own well-being into the future as Wabanaki people, I think it distills sort of how, how you know you know some would say capitalism is built upon these structures of cheating right some would say that the idea that there would be a winner and a loser like based upon some sort of hierarchy that the flow of, of money or resources or you know or exploitation would flow from poor to wealthy for capital accumulation some would say that's not a bug of the system but the structure of it so i think you know just really thinking that through in terms of Ex exploitation of forms of hierarchy, I think for me is really important as a Wabanaki person to think in those terms, you know, that, you know, and, and I'm not saying, you know, uh, I'm fighting right now for, I'm working uh, with a bunch of other people to do things like land return, which I think is about the justice around this other piece of takings, you know, for me, that's, um, that's how we start to remedy this. So I'm not, I'm not just living in the critique, but I think you have to re- really clear-eyed about what's going on here. Sure, and uh, the way that I, I look at this is, you know, we have to understand what's going on behind the scenes in those hidden elements, those hidden places that actually control what we're doing. And what controls in my perspective anyway, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what has controlled us is the the banking element, the money that that fight for land, uh, and it kind of trickles down into what's happening with us today even because of that land claims. So it all kind of falls down, uh, but, but we have, I think we have to realize that sort of 
uh, historic economic scenario and be and be cognizant of the global perspective and how I know we're kind of a microchasm in that, but it does affect us. And I wanted to also uh, Harold ask about the at, at the time back in 1622, uh, 27, 28, uh, there was a war in Europe. Is that correct? There was a war going on? There were wars going on all the time. Um, and so in this particular case, among the multiple wars, um, uh, actually warfare uh, has been actually quite good for capitalism, strangely enough. Um, it's a, um, there's a concept that was uh, developed in, um, in the early 1900s by a, a German uh, economist, uh, social economist, uh, Bernard Zombard, and he talks about creative destruction and creative destruction is uh, how, through the destruction of um, forests, for example, um, in Germany, how the coal industry came into being. But also when you see massive bombing, massive construction follows, same thing with a, with a hurricane, for example. So it's an interesting thing uh, that uh, there was a, 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 an architect, Mies, uh, uh, Mies von der a German architect who actually was favoring war because you could rebuild all the cities to the modern standards instead of having to deal the old little cities with a curve here and a curve there and the roads could make nice straight broad roads to get all the trucks in and trucks out and the whole thing so the idea was that destroy the old cities and rebuild modern cities is so much better for the economy and for the future of humanity but coming back to your thing about questions about war and Darren's comment earlier about um, uh, land and land speculation, that's true. But the key element was also uh, the ex extraction economy. Uh, in other words, uh, the value of the Inca Empire uh, for the Spaniards right, were the silver mines in Potosí. Uh, same thing with the silver mines in Mexico. So the staggering amount of silver that is mined by uh, American Indians who could work on high altitudes, black slaves from Africa that uh, didn't survive at that high altitude, but the Quechua and the Aymara uh, could be forced to work uh, what they call tribute labor into the mines at high altitude in the Andes uh, to, um, to um, dig up the silver. And uh, the same thing in the Mexican highlands. And so uh, there was a massive exploitation of indigenous labor and if the indigenous labor fell away because of the uh, massive diseases um, and just working people to death, then you had a cheap supply of new labor in the form of African captives who are across, crossing the Atlantic and take their place. And so the extraction of um, uh, natural resources, whether it's um, silver and gold in the case of um, many areas, but also copper, of course, uh, became a valuable um, precious metal uh, that was part of an alloy for bronze making, very important, of course, again, for the war industry as well. And then in Maine, of course, was the extractive industry, was fish fish in the waters, but also the, the timber, right? So it was not so much um, the land or land speculation as such, but it was how quickly can you harvest the natural resources by either mining or by clear cutting, and then sell off the produce, and that's how you make the money, and that's how the big mansions in Bangor were built by the lumber barons. And so here we are looking at these architectural beauties, right? And say, wow, what a beautiful building. But if you look at the eco side, right? The destruction of uh, Wabanaki homeland by clear cutting it, 
uh, by these lumber barons and polluting the rivers and make it impossible for the Penobscot to canoe to their hunting territories because there's, there's logs all over the place. Uh, that, of course, uh, is how capitalism works, right? So uh, back to uh, Darren's comment and your question, I find it quite stunning that as residents in capitalist countries, that citizens whose lives are daily impacted by the forces of capitalism itself have basically no fundamental understanding of how capitalism works, which is the driving engine in the societies within which we work, within which we earn our living, and which uh, in, in which we um, uh, die, right? So from cradle to grave, our lives are determined by capitalist structures, many of which are very difficult to unravel and to see. Um, and yet um, we are doing far too little in, uh, in the colleges, at the universities, to teach basically capitalism 101. Totally agree. Um, the other the other thing that I I thought was interesting uh, going back again. I think we're kind of I I feel like we're on a roller coaster here going back and forth, but I think we all have our our interest points that we want to get out. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to uh, kind of zero in on too when I mentioned the war in Europe was uh, Harold when you were talking about investment that what was a safe investment and what wasn't. And because of these uh, wars, I think you said, and correct me, uh, that it was a better investment to look uh, towards the, uh, uh, the West uh, to invest rather than in, invest in Europe. So that's kind of like why they were like investing their money in this, this settlement and this land and uh, developing that. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure which century you meant because uh, in Europe, uh, about for every four years of peace, there's been one year of warfare. So the number of wars that have been fought on European soil are just staggering, right? And we have we often date them by numbers: twelve-year war, seven-year war, eighty-year war. In the case of my country, uh, for independence, uh, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, uh, to go back to the bankers that we talked about, who were cruising in the, in the on the coast of Maine. Well, the Penobscots were forced to sign the Treaty of 1796, and old chief uh, Joseph Orono, and I mentioned the word bargain, right, which was basically the idea of a purchase, uh, had nothing to do with um, uh, anything other than clearing title so that land could be used as a collateral uh, for loans, right? So these bankers were only willing to pour in the money if they could make sure that the title was clear. And the moment it was a cloud over that land title, uh, they said, we are not going to invest that money and we're not going to loan that money. So Henry Knox, for example, was short of capital, was desperate for money. The Massachusetts uh, government entirely was deep in debt because of the Revolutionary War. And all of the United States was deep in debt with, in particular, the Amsterdam bankers. And there was all incurred during the, uh, the, the Revolutionary War where they just didn't have enough capital to fight that war against Great Britain. And even the support of the French crown was not enough to do it. So they needed a lot of money. And a number of people made huge amount of capital. So Bingham, who I mentioned before, William Bingham is basically a war profiteer. He was a privateer in the Caribbean at the time. 
uh, made a huge amount of money uh, when it was out there. Uh, and that money he parked later into land speculations. Uh, so that was directly out, out of war. Henry Knox inherited through his wife, uh, his wife's grandfather was Samuel Waldo, uh, still remembered through Waldo County and Waldoboro. Uh, but then had, he had a huge amount of land inherited through his wife. He didn't have any capital from his own family. Uh, he came from poor background. But he had, was, was a brilliant guy and was uh, the darling of George Washington. Um, but he want, he basically wanted to see himself as a French count or duke with a palatial house. And so he built that big mansion in Thomaston. But he didn't have the money to develop the land that he had, um, quote, inherited, end quote, into, in terms of the Waldo patent. There's a very dark story behind that, too. Uh, so he needed the, uh, the investment capital from these bankers overseas. And they were only willing to lend that capital if the title to those lands were not clouded by, because they didn't want to deal with all the litigation that we know so well from the United States, where everything is perpetually litigated, because these titles are unclear, the boundaries are unclear, and so people go to court. For historians, these are a boon, because that's how we get a window on uh, a lot of things that we otherwise would not have known. We have not talked about the Indian deeds, but there's a lot of that uh, that gamesmanship with Indian deeds that ha doesn't really have to do so much between as a contract between the buyer and the seller, which is very obscure and very dubious. But the primary purpose was that two white settlers would have be clarity about who claimed what. And so as a result, from early on, you got the falsification of the deeds not so much in the first place to bamboozle the Wabanaki, but to bamboozle their own neighbors. Later, they're using these flawed documents, really false and sometimes purely invented frauds. They're using them to batter the Wabanaki in the Kennebec, for example, and showing them all these deeds, deeds, deeds. And the Wabanaki chiefs are saying, we don't know what these pieces of paper are about. We've never seen them before. We don't know what they're about. And so ultimately, James Bowden and his buddies in Boston are part of a gang of thieves. That's really what it is. They're part of a gang of thieves who are using history and documentation to usurp the land and then use their own ill-begotten gains to finance places like Fort Western and Fort Richmond. And then have the state of Massachusetts, or at that time province of Massachusetts and the Crown, pay for the troops. I mean, the whole thing is such a wedding of um, using the, their offices, high offices, while at the same time pursuing private um, uh, profiteering uh, objectives, and then buying their way into ever being remembered and naming by, in the case of James Bowden, his son wants to do a tribute to his daddy, James, and then having Bowden College named after it so that we all start saying, well, I'm teaching at Bowden College, or I'm going to Bowden College, that has a prestige name. So all these philanthropies and these gifts, you have to look at it with great suspicion because they're all meant to cleanse the dirty hands of the capital that was then part of which tax deductible donated for good causes. And you can then talk about the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, Mellon Foundation, Lilly Foundation, and so forth, and so forth, and so on. Karen. Yeah, uh, Harold, thanks for closing a couple of those loops. I think those was really powerful, actually. And I think, and I should have, I should have said this before too. I think that the land, right, was the thing that people were able to get 
the finances for you know like as as always right so these tenuous claims um being so important to that i, I just want to share a, a short story i know we're down to uh, under five minutes here um we were uh i mentioned our land return work um um two years ago we were we were touring some forested lands um some really well managed um by a by a private family forestry. I'm, I won't mention them because it's it's not that important and I don't wanna, I'm not casting aspersions on them, but it was just information that uh, I and a, a few other Wabanaki people, many of whom are like basket makers or harvesters or, you know, um, people, um, you know, who are interested in land return work or to practice our culture. Um, and we were out pretty deep into the woods and, you know, that we were kind of, uh, meeting around this one stand of of trees that were really interesting um but possible for as a as actually birch um really old birch trees so um use use for our artisans possibly if if land could be returned or access or whatever um and they mentioned at the time you know this is at the the beginning uh stages of the very um high interest rates um right the post covid and the um the land manager there for this private forestry company was like talking about how dynamic the 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 transfer of real estate in in northern maine was at the time and partly it was like you know uh, private uh, equity capitalist firms uh, some of them from europe um investing in land at a time with high interest rates was like oh this is this you know secure kind of <laughs> thing to invest in land you know that kind of insulates you from interest because that will the land tends to keep pace with interest rates in a way that other investments uh, don't and um you know and they're like oh this is european tradition to really you know put your money into land and they were just reflecting the land which is sort of what Harold was saying and then um the reaction I, it was you know I, I felt it as well but people who were like so they took our land and now it's uh investment for their you know capital that they got from stealing our you know meaning like the cycle doesn't end simply because the land has been ex expropriated from us like it it prevents all sorts of other claims that we can make um, um, as sort of the victims of these different sides of things. But it was just to see uh, several Wabanaki people kind of process that all at once of like, oh, now it's it's an ongoing capitalist sort of investment system of money begat money, begat investment lands in, in that cycle. And it was just sort of, to me as a Wabanaki window into this, in the sort of, you know, horror of it you know the basic kind of like oh this is how the world works outside of what we want from our land and how that um prevents us from the kind of justice we are seeking through things like land return or a settlement act or anything like that carol well i have nothing to add really to that uh, because it's a wonderful uh story that darren was just saying and i think it's like a perfect ending to a kind of dark uh story that there may be hope uh, a through the kind of things that Darren is involved in. Uh, and I also want to thank you, uh, Donna, for opening that Wabanaki window to those kind of questions um, that are raised once you see a landscape out there. You start saying, what exactly is going on there? And for your audience, I hope that this is also um, raising minimally questions. Um, doesn't necessarily have all the answers, but minimally people need to start asking more critical questions. Yeah, and I agree. And I. Uh, this show here, I think, is the 
uh, I want to do at least one more show on this because I think we've just barely uh, scratched the surface of what I feel that people people should know and and, and understand about this uh, this process and how things under this capitalistic ongoing system basically gets commodified. Uh, so I want to kind of dig into that uh, at the at our next at our next show. Uh, so um, I uh, I want to thank. Uh, uh, Professor uh, Harold Prince and uh, Professor Darren for uh, Darren Ranko for being on the show today. I want to thank you all for joining us. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Webinaki Windows. The music for our show is by Ralph Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows.